to see you all this morning. I'm uh, Nathan, for those who, of you who don't know me, and I had the privilege this morning of uh, bringing God's Word to you. Uh, we were in a study in the, the book of First Peter, and I must say, it's lovely to be back. You know, Jules and I have been away for uh, the last uh, four or five weeks, and it's, uh, it's always a very sweet thing when you come back and uh, fellowship with people you know and people you love, and so uh, it's good to be here. And I'm particularly looking forward to uh, sharing with you uh, this section of First Peter this morning. I don't need to tell you, but we live in a world that is evil. Just do a sweep through what has happened in this past week. You see atrocities, you see acts of hate, you see truth being eroded at every corner. That's where we live. That's our daily occurrence. But you know what? We're different because we live in this world as followers of Christ. And that makes a huge difference to the way we view, view our time here on earth. It makes a massive difference when we get locked into trials. Because we look beyond our trial, we look beyond our circumstance and we look to our Saviour who has promised us incredible blessing. In this letter, First Peter, and particularly in the section we're about to look at today, I think there is three pertinent questions which we need to answer. Yes, we are in this world, but as Christians, as believers, as followers of Christ, how are we to live in this world? That's the first question that we will address. Secondly, as, as believers, as followers of Christ, what marks, what should mark our life before others? What should be evident to all as we live in this world? And thirdly, in, in what way does God's work of salvation change our outlook of life? How does what God has done for us change our daily walk? Yeah, these are penetrating questions. They are things that should go deep into our heart because as people who profess faith in Christ... These are questions of application in that faith. You see, we've talked about, uh, Peter has, has given us this living hope. We have born, been born again into a living hope. And I would contend that living hope results in living an active lifestyle for Christ. You can't divorce the two. And this is where we're going today within this letter. So if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1. 
We're going to be reading from verse 13 through to verse 21. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. Not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. Like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. See, at this point in the letter, Peter has he's just given this great doxology. And he comes to a summary point. We see that in the very first verse. That's why we have this, ver- this, this word, therefore. He's just, in the previous 12 verses, encouraged and declared to these believers, to these Christians, to those that are in Christ, you know, the ones that are called, the ones that are elected, the ones who are in exile, who have been persecuted and spread because of the gospel throughout this region. He's just told them that their salvation is entirely of God. It was foreknown by God. The Spirit sanctified them and Christ atoned for them. Christ's blood was sprinkled for them. You get that in the first two verses. All three persons of the triune God are involved in salvation. Then that's tremendous. can be no other way. And what does this salvation provide, according to Peter? It provides a living hope, an imperishable inheritance. It provides a certainty that, that this hope that you have at some time in the future your salvation will be fully realised. You know, we're not in a perfect state. Ask my wife. She knows I'm not in a perfect state. Ask my daughter. She knows I'm not in a perfect state. But it's a transforming process that one day in the future our salvation will be consummated. Our salvation will be realised. Our full salvation will be inaugurated. See, we live in this tension at the moment of already but not yet. We have all these promises but they're not yet fully realised. 
And hence, that's why the Spirit of God dwells within us to enable us to, to continue to look at the living hope and honour him with our lifestyle. So this, Peter has explained this. We have a living hope, an imperishable inheritance, a hope that is certain and secure to be one day be fully realised. And finally, in this, in this introduction, he says, you are in circumstances in life. You're going to face trials. You know, as a community, we're facing a trial over the same-sex marriage. That's a trial. Because it's eroding the belief that we have. It's eroding the truth of God. It's a trial. And through that trial, what is it doing? According to Peter, these trials will test you to to ensure your genuineness of faith. It's a refining process. Ask anybody here, ask any of your fellow fellow followers of Christ. Post-trials, when you look back through the trial, you see the wonderful hand of God. And it tests to his genuineness in your life. And it's refining you to, to see God in a way that you've never seen him before. That's what trials are for, though, to, to test this genuineness of our faith, to show us a, an authentic faith that is a, a refined faith. And how we know it's a genuine faith and a refined faith because through that trial you're going to praise God. See, all these exhortations in the first 12 verses are, are grounded in God's saving work for you and I. They're grounded in what God has done for us. And you know what? This is a wonderful quote from Thomas Schreiner. He says this about this portion. Believers are to obey because they are God's chosen pilgrims. Because they have been saved by the Father. Because they have an untouchable inheritance. And because of the greatness of their salvation. God's commands are always rooted in his grace. God's commands are always rooted in his grace. Another way of putting this, and you might hear me say this a lot over the next 12 months, the indicative, what God has done, what we've just read about, what Shabu took us through for the first two weeks, the indicative, what God has done, for us in Christ is always, always, always the basis for the command, for the imperative, i.e. how we should live. To confuse that order would be disastrous. To confuse that would be absolutely disastrous because it would result in a works-based Salvation. It would result in a works-based righteousness. Oh, if I can work away at this stuff, if I can follow the commands, and if I'm obedient, therefore that will save me. No. Our salvation is always based on Christ and what he has done. Grab hold of that because 
That is the essential part of our faith. And what Christ has done is the motivating influence in our lives to serve him with love. And to serve others with love. Now, if you go down this works righteousness, you miss the whole aspect and practice of God's grace and power in your life as a response to the love of Christ. You know, if you go down this track of saying, I have some morality or I have some rule keeping or it could even be license, the, the things of moralism and legalism and license are are all attempts to please God. Folks, when it comes to your salvation, you don't have to please God. That's been satisfied in Christ. But you are to be obedient. That's the counter side. I was thinking about this. I'm thinking, well, how do we stop falling into moralism? And and I, I guess most of us here are Involved in the parent-child relationship. Either as a child or as a parent, right? And I remember early on, you know, you get stuck in and you're trying to teach your kids some stuff to do, right? And you sit away and you, you, you hammer away at trying to teach them what to do, what to do. And at the end, you just you pull your hair and say, why aren't you doing this? And, and, and you end up by saying, Come on, Johnny or Jimmy or Jane, just just do it because it's right. Do it because it's right. I'd like to turn that on its head. Because that's moralism. You just don't do something because it's right. Right? You do something, you can say to your child, look. We want to follow God in this. God has saved me from the wrong things I do. And to honour God, I want to obey and follow this command. That's grace. That's a motivation of grace, not a motivation of morality. So as we look at these verses, we're going to look at the three basic commands that Peter gives to these churches. There are three commands in this section. The entire section from 113 through to 23, you probably could title as God's call to holy living. You title it that way. We're going to look at the first part today. And look at the three commands that are given. We're going to look at these three commands in light of answering those questions I started with. How can I, as a follower of Christ, live in this world? What are the marks that should be displayed as I live in this world? And how does God's work of salvation affect the way I live in this world? So verse 13 There is a command in verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. 
What is the command there? The command is to set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Christ Jesus. Now, English doesn't help us with this because it puts the participles before the command. It puts preparing your mind and being sober-minded before the command. It says, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you in Christ. Now, this is really in line with Peter's theme. What is Peter's theme for First Peter? Why has he written this letter? Do we know? A good way of finding out why he's written this letter is to read the letter. Who's reading the letter? Great. So where would we find an indication of, of uh, what his purpose is? Within the letter. Quite simple, really, isn't it? So I'm going to take you to 1 Peter 5. Towards the end of the letter, he, he states his purpose for writing this letter. 1 Peter 5, verse 12 says this, By Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly. Whenever you see that in scripture, folks, it's a really big key. Alright? As you read through the letter and you see, I have written. He's normally going to be displaying why he has written this letter. As he does. I have written briefly to you, and there's two things he does. He exhorts and declares. So it's a letter of exhortation and it's a letter of declaration. We've just gone through a section where it's really Declarative, right? This is who God is. This is how he has saved you. This is what you have. That's a a very declared process in these first 12 uh, verses. And then he exhorts, and that's the section we're into now. He's starting to exhort, and he does that for the balance of the letter. But what's he exhorting, and what's his true purpose? That this is the true grace of God. Peter wants to unfold to us through this letter what God's grace is really about, what God's grace is based on Christ and how that should interact with our lives. And then he gives a command, stand for a minute. If you go over to 2 Peter, he does a similar thing. 2 Peter chapter 3, I won't read it, but look at it in your own time and, and marry up these two purposes. So we go back to, to 1 Peter chapter 1. Therefore, preparing your minds for action, being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. It aligns with his purpose. I'm writing to you, declaring to you, this is the true grace of God. And the true grace of God in this sense and in this context is talking about the revelation of Christ at a future time. It's going to be brought to you. It's future tense. Set your minds on that. Folks, we have a hope. Christ will return. Be excited about that. Christ will return. And if you have placed your faith and trust in Christ, he's going to take you home to be with him. Hallelujah, what a saviour. What part do you have in that? Nothing. It's a gift of God's grace.
So set your hope fully on the grace. Now, how do you set your hope? There's two things that he says to do in this verse. How do you set your hope on this grace? How do you set your hope on the fact that Christ is going to return, that Christ is going to be revealed in his fullness and his glory? Prepare your minds for action and be sober-minded. Prepare your minds for action. I love the old King James here. It says, gird up the loins of your mind. When you got dressed this morning, did you gird yourself up? Well, I hope you did. You hit your pants up. Okay? It's a really descriptive term. To gird the loins of your mind is to get ready and be prepared. It's like me saying to you, roll up your sleeves and get prepared for work. That's the sort of intent of this. So, Because of all the things that you know about your salvation, gird up your mind. See, all practice into godliness, all practice into sanctification starts with what? The mind. It's not experience. It's the mind. The mind determines practice. And when you focus your mind on the full grace that will be revealed in Christ Jesus... That will enable you to go through the circumstances of life and see those trials as a testing and refining of your faith. So you prepare your mind for action by girding up the loins of your mind, by rolling up your sleeves, by thinking about the things that you should be thinking about. Paul talks about it in uh, First Colossians. Set your mind on things above not on things of earth. For your life is hidden in Christ in God. And when your life will, when in Christ will be uh, revealed, then you will be revealed with him. It's not word perfect, but that gives you a sense of what Peter and Paul are driving at here. That our Eternal promise and eternal hope that comes through is something that fuels our action. The second part was good up the laws of your mind. The second part is to be self-controlled and attentive in behaviour. And that also starts with the mind. It also starts with the mind. Verse 14 through 16, we see our second command. Let's read the verses again. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But he who called you is holy. You also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. The command here is also stuck in the middle of these sentences. The command is to be holy. We don't talk about holiness a lot these days, do we? We read uh, some wonderful verses throughout our time this morning as we, we came towards the table. Did you catch those verses? Isaiah chapter 6, Ezekiel chapter 1, Revelation chapter 4. What was the theme of those verses? The holiness of God. 
I would suggest to you that the holiness of God is the supreme characteristic of God. We have three men, Isaiah, Ezekiel and John, trying to picture for us in some word language what the holiness of God looks like. And it's absolutely indescribable. Wheels within wheels in one of the, the metaphors. You've got this throne just surrounded by glory. What does that look like? I don't know. To me it's indescribable, I think. The Lord for his word, which gives us some glimpses into the holiness of God. But you know, it's interesting, we have a look at the holiness of God and he says, be holy as I am holy. And you just got to say, how? I'm not God, how can I be holy? Gives a couple of clues here. Firstly, your holiness starts with small steps and obedience. If you put your faith and trust in Christ, you have the spirit that dwells within you. And I'm sure many of us can testify here that when we come to faith in Christ, that we have things exposed in our lives that aren't godly. And the Lord deals with those with us in a gracious way. Sometimes in not such a gracious way. He wants to shape and refine us and he wants us not to be conformed to our former way of life, to our former ignorance. Verse 14 talks about that and that's what Peter is lining up these people. Don't be conformed by the culture that you're in. We're not quite sure who he's writing to. We know where he's writing. We're not sure what type of people are making up these churches, whether it's predominantly Jewish or whether it's predominantly Roman. I'd maybe tend to go, if I had to, if someone squeezed me saying it's probably more likely Roman, because um, with this particular verse here, he says, don't be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. At least with Judaism, they didn't have an ignorance about Yahweh. They had knowledge without zeal, yes, granted. But they didn't have ignorance about who God was. So perhaps I may lean towards the fact that this uh, audience is predominantly Roman. And he's saying, be obedient to Christ, not to the things that you used to do. Don't be conformed to the passions of your former life, if you like. And don't fuel those passions. Part of preparing your mind and being sober-minded and setting your hope upon Christ is to deal with the stuff that you know is unholy. And you know what? God's grace helps us in that. We need to repent of the stuff. We need to flee from the things that take us down a track that we know doesn't glorify God. How do we know? The spirit within you reveals it to you. Your conscience gets uneasy if you sit through perhaps a a program that is less than honourable. I think it's a really difficult issue for us today. 
I'll tell you why, because we've got, we have the media flood coming into our living rooms, right? We're flooded by media, left, right and centre, and I think at times we fail to say no. But take courage. God's Spirit and through His grace can lead you down a path that leads to holiness. I don't know individually where you're at, but I think you need to think through that as a follower of Christ. What are the things that are stopping me from fulfilling, fulfilling this command? Make a list of them this week. Knock off one at a time. Repent of it and ask for the inner fortitude to deal with that stuff in your life for the sake and glory of Christ. It's also good to be accountable to others in this process. It's where discipleship of one another is very helpful. If you're not in a discipleship relationship, pray, seek someone to keep you accountable in these areas that are ensnaring you. Hebrews talks about that, sin enslaves and ensnares. But we're commanded to be holy as God is holy. I just want to draw your attention to one other thing here. Please note in verse 15, but as he who called you is holy. So even before the command of being holy, we have this indicative. God's calling. The calling here refers to God's effectual calling in which he, he brings people to himself. We see this a little bit later in the letter. If you go to 2 verse 9, you see, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of who, him who called you out of darkness into a marvellous light. You see, in, in, in this verse we've just read, God calls people out of darkness into his wonderful light. Calling doesn't just necessarily mean invite but conveys the idea that God is central in this process. He's central in bringing people from darkness to light. God is central in bringing you out of darkness into the glorious light of Christ. Just as God's call creates light when there is darkness, so he creates life when there was death. And so you see here, when God calls us to be holy, he's basing it on his calling of you. So therefore we can be holy because he's provided the grace for us to be so. Holiness embraces all of life. It's not just something that happens here on a Sunday morning doesn't even happen here on a Sunday morning. Okay, a pursuit of holiness is something that happens all of life. And holiness is possible because who grants us the Holy Spirit? God. The Comforter. 
This is a gift of grace. This is part of the grace that we should be looking for as we strive to serve him. This is part of the grace that we should understand and stand firm in it. Yes, I am a sinner saved by grace. And yes, I have the spirit of God within me who is drawing me towards holiness, refining, shaping my life for his glory. Thirdly, verses 17 through 21, we have a third command. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot, He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. The third command here is to conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. It's interesting because Peter calls upon God's impartiality in judgment. And I think this is eschatological judgment. This is a judgment at the end of the age where we all stand before God's throne. And he says, call upon him. And in light of what you know God is going to do, in light of the fact that God will judge impartially, A lot of the fact that will happen, conduct yourselves. Make that be a motivating factor for the, for your life here on earth. But not only that, because that's not the key. The key follows in verse 18 through 21. Yes, God, it's a balance. God is going to be an impartial judge. The book of life is open before Him. He will judge impartially based on what people have done with the person and work of Christ. But now, conduct yourselves in light of that, knowing, and please get verse 18, because this is so rich, knowing that you were ransomed. Knowing that you have been bought, if you like, with a price. This word ransomed uh, should cause us no dread or fear at the judgment, because Christ has ransomed us. Ransomed is mentioned several times in the Old Testament. Ransomed, uh, the most classic example is when the Israelis came out of Egypt at the Passover. They were ransomed. What paid the ransom? The lamb. When that happened. David in Psalm 25, 26, 31 and 32 talks about being individually redeemed or ransomed by the Lord. In Isaiah, you see some national ransom to the nation of Israel in Isaiah 41 and 43 and and many other portions in that latter part of Isaiah. And in this Greek-Roman culture, they would have also understood ransom. They would understand it as a a manumission. A manumission was happened to a slave. Okay, So in this culture, in this culture in which Peter was writing, it was a Roman practice. A slave would receive uh, freedom after depositing money in the temple of a god or goddess. So if you're a slave and you want to be free, you said, okay, I'm going to go and put some, 
silver or gold into, into the temple um, repository. And um, the money that would be paid uh, via the temple treasury, of course the commission would, would go to the slave owner. And, um, and then it was thought of by society in this culture that uh, the god or the goddess had just ransomed that slave. The slave would be, be uh, free from the previous owner but would be considered a slave of that god or goddess. So that was going on in this culture where, where Peter's writing and uh, talking about ransomed. I think Peter's using all four forms I've just mentioned. He's using the Passover, he's using individual ransom, he's using national, and he's using this Greco-Roman view of it to state the fact that Christ has ransomed you. That is the key. That is the only ransom of any value. Because in the description here of how we've been ransomed, we see the, the, the thing that we've inherited something that's not perishable, like silver and gold, perhaps tying it to the, the manimism uh, culture of the day. No, you've been ransomed by something far more precious than it's the blood of Christ. The blood of Christ is like a lamb without spot or blemish, referring to Passover. The blood of Christ that has been foreknown before the foundation of the world. He's picking up this elect, choosing, foreknowledge language again. He started in the start of chapter 1 and he's saying, hey, this plan of salvation was something that wasn't, didn't have to be made up as time went along. Something that was before the foundation of the world and relates to the person and work of Christ. See, as we think through what we call the vicarious atonement of Christ, his body, his blood, for our behalf, it's got to result in deepening your faith. It's got to result in increasing your hope. Because that's the impact of the gospel in your heart. You may not know that reality. You may not know or have called out to God to have your sin dealt with. Let me tell you, today is the day of salvation. This very hour is the hour of salvation. The Word of God tells us, Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Christ's sacrificial death is for you. Accept it by faith. And start a wonderful life that has the security that beyond this world you have an eternal home that is amazing. So, how as Christians are we living this world? 
Christian, I say to you, set your hope on the grace that is to be revealed. Set your hope by preparing your mind and being sober-minded on the fact that Christ's promises are true. What are the marks of our hope? What are the marks of our faith that should be evidenced as we walk the streets today? A holy lifestyle. As Christians, we are to be set apart from this world. We follow a higher master. We are to have a reverent fear because one day the, the judge who judges impartially will judge all. And we are to have an understanding that our lives have been ransomed by the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. In what way does our view of salvation change your outlook on life? In absolutely every way. In absolutely every way. Because it lifts your view off life circumstances. It fuels you with an internal hope. It takes you away from the dross of this world and focuses you on the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. It gives you security. That your sin has been forgiven. It provides security of your salvation. It can never be taken away. And his call is the sanctifying work in your life as the Holy Spirit works uh, through you to transform you into a vessel of honour. So this week, folks, live in this world as a, a Christian who has a hope. Live in this world as a Christian who is determined to, to be holy in all you do. And live in this world with the secure knowledge that your salvation changes your total outlook on life. I'd like to call the music team up, thanks. Uh, so we're just going to pray, and then the team will sing the song as we, uh, as we depart. So let's pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for these words this morning from this wonderful book. Father, enables us to set our hope on the grace and the revelation that's going to be brought to us by Jesus Christ. Enable us to prepare our minds, to be sober-minded, to be obedient, to understand you are calling us to holiness, to understand that our salvation is a pure act of your grace and that fuels our life from this day forward. Father, just creating us a, a clean heart, we pray. Continue to transform us. Continue to sh um, shape us and refine us. This is our prayer now in Christ's name. Amen. Please um, join us for a cuppa and these guys are going to sing, sing for us.